This episode is sponsored by McCaffrey Crafts, specialising in authentic walking sticks and shillelaghs handcrafted in County Kerry from Blackthorn that grows out of Irish soil. Find them online at McCaffreyCrafts.com. That's M-C-C-A-F-F-R-E-Y-C-R-A-F-T-S.com. McCaffreyCrafts.com. It's Falcha to the Irish Mythology Podcast, where today the god Lou discovers the truth behind his father's disappearance. I'm Marcus O'Hishkin. And we'll have a chat about Lou's many nicknames and what they say about his role as a deity. I'm Steffi Nihirni. Yeah, so the month of Lunasa, or August, has come and gone. And once again, we're looking at the old pagan deity that the month is named for in Irish. We went into the meaning of Lou in some depth in the last two episodes in July. We've established that he's associated with the harvest and crop cultivation, as well as sovereignty. His continental forerunner, Lugus, and his Welsh counterpart, Hlu, seem to have been important to shoemakers. In the last three episodes, we saw how Lou starts a fight back against the Fomorians, a supernatural race of sea people who have been raiding and pillaging Ireland. This leads to him being granted leadership of the god people by King Nuda in the run-up to the war. But just before the battle where Lu makes his name, his father, Keen, goes missing while trying to recruit for Lu's army. The new war leader of the gods is determined to solve this mystery before the looming battle. In our last episode, we learned another bit of important information about Lu. His grandfather, Balor, who's the champion of the enemy, Formorians, tries to have him killed as a baby because of a prophecy that he would be killed by his grandson. In our adaptation of that tale, Lou's father Keen appears to Balor in a dream to taunt him about his prophesied demise. We take the story up from there today as Lou sets out to find what happened to his father and in the event of his worst fears being confirmed, bring those responsible to justice. This is our adaptation of the second part of the saga, The Fate of the Children of Turin. We told the first part back in episode 18, but that and the subsequent two episodes are all linked as part of our retelling of the famous saga, The Second Battle of Maitura. So here's Steffi narrating The Judgment of Lou. It is a sorrowful melody that the wind whistles across the great plain of Myrtima. It reminds Lou of the music he played that brought the two a day to tears on the day he took his place at Tara. He brings his horse to a halt by a pig farm and raises his hand. The cavalcade of warriors that rides behind him comes to a standstill. Something has brought grief upon the wind in this place, he says to Bojarig, who has brought his horse up alongside Luz. If only it could speak, he adds. Bo Jarig replies, Perhaps the land has something to say. Lou nods and dismounts his horse. He kneels. Then he leans forward, places his two palms flat on the ground and closes his eyes. He whispers, O plain of Myrtima, tell me, speak as if you are a friend. Tell me the terrible tragedy that brought such sorrow on the wind. Be forthright, 
But gentle when you give me the news of what end befell my father here. Tell me the fate of Keen, O plain of Myrtima. Lou's body shudders as tendrils of green grass wrap around his fingers. He feels the mind of the earth connect with his mind. He sees lines of bright translucent light and then an image appears. His father, Keen, dismounting his horse and crouching behind a pig pen. Three warriors in the distance pointing towards him. His father taking the form of a pig. The warriors searching the pen. One of them grabbing a pig turning it on its back and wrapping his hands around its throat. The pig, changing back to the shape of his father. Words exchanged, inaudible. The three warriors picking up stones and pelting Keen. Their faces are now visible. Rhine, Ucher, Ucherba, the sons of Turin. The image fades. Lines of translucent light retreat. The Earth's mind disconnects from Lou's mind. Lou opens his eyes. They are filled with tears. He gulps to hold back the sound that wants to leave his mouth and points towards his left. There. That pig pen over to the west dig there. The riders of his battalion get down from their horses and take whatever weapons they can use to dig with. Lou sits under a nearby yew tree and stares into the distance, every so often wiping the tears from his eyes. It isn't long before Bojarig calls him over to the site of the dig. Two of the riders of the she finish cleaning the dirt off Keen's body as Lou arrives at the pig pen. He looks upon his father's wounds and bruises. The tears rush back to his eyes. This time, he does not have the strength to wipe them away, and he cares little for how he might appear to his troops. Lou turns to face the riders of the she who have gathered around in solemn silence. He speaks. It is bad the way I am myself after this death, for I can hear nothing with my ears, and I can see nothing with my eyes, and there is not a living pulse in my heart. The sickness of grief is upon me. One by one, each of his warriors approaches with words of consolation a hand on the shoulder, or a hug, or a handshake. When the condolences are done, they lower Keen back into the ground, cover him with earth until there is a mound above him, and they raise a dolman over his final resting place. Lou, a little more composed than before, steps forward to speak once again. The tears have gone from his eyes, though they are still red raw. For the rest of time, this mound will bear the name of my father, Keen. His great deeds shall be remembered, and though his body lies in pieces, 
his honour is intact. As to the sons of Turin, who gave him the death of an enemy before riding to fight by my side as an ally, their names will live on in infamy, and this deed will fall upon their children, their grandchildren, and their great-grandchildren. For the crime of gods killing gods, they will be cast into anguish, and until then, our people will never be at peace. The riders of the Shi return to their horses to prepare for the journey back to Tara, leaving Lu in silence to stand over his father's grave. The assembly hall at Tara is packed to capacity with local chieftains, the god people, and the people of the Shi. Lu, Nuada, Akma, the Dagda, and Bojarig sit on a podium at the top of the hall. The chatter in the room dies out as Lu stands to speak. First and foremost, this assembly has been called to discuss the coming war with the Formorians, who our scouts tell us are building ships and forging weapons at a rate we have never seen. However, before we get to that, there is a great injustice that needs to be addressed. The noise rises in the room again as the assembled turn to those next to them and inquire if they know what this is about. It dies down again as Lou continues. The matter I am speaking of is a murder. The hall is filled with noise again. Nuda bangs his right arm on the arm of his seat. Order! He shouts. Lou continues. This is a matter that will divide all of our people if it is not addressed. The victim is my father and his killers are in this room. Once more, there is frenzied discussion. Again, it dies down as Nuada turns to Lou and says, If it was my father... It is not a single death I would give his killers. I would cut off a part of their bodies every day until there was nothing left of them. There are nods of agreement around the room, including from the sons of Turin. That thought has occurred to me, says Lou. But we have a war to fight. I will take the payment of a fine befitting my father's honour price if they come forward and agree to pay it now. The assembled chieftains glance around the room to see if anyone will admit to the crime. The sons of Turin confer amongst themselves. We should admit it, says Ucher. We are getting off lightly with a fine. Brian shakes his head. I am anxious that this is a trick to get an admission of guilt in front of everyone and he won't settle for the fine once he gets it. He won't go back on his word, says Ukherva. Not after giving it in front of the assembly. 
Reluctantly, Brian stands. The room goes silent. I know that you believe it is us who killed your father because of the ancient feud between our peoples. But I tell you now, we are innocent. But if it will settle the matter, we will pay the fine. You have not heard the compensation required yet, says Lou. It may be too high a price for you to pay for a crime you say you did not commit. Well, tell us what the fine is, Brian answers. Let us decide if it is too much or not. Very well then, says Lou. The fine I am asking for is three apples, the skin of a pig, a spear, two horses, a chariot, seven pigs, a dog's whelp, a cooking spit and three shouts on a hill. The sons of Turin look at each other and shrug their shoulders. Brian turns back to Lou. That seems reasonable. I give you my word in front of this assembly that we will pay the fine. Lou shakes his head. I have an agreement drawn up. The three of you will sign it. Bojarig and Nuada will sign as witnesses. Come to the podium. Brian, Ucher and Ucherba can feel the eyes of every being in the room on them as they approach the podium. Bojarig presents them with the papers. When all the parties have signed, Lou turns to the sons of Turin. Now, I have specific instructions as to the exact items I require. The three apples I asked of you are the three apples from the garden in the east of the world. They can cure any illness and they can be eaten forever and never get smaller. The skin I require is the pig skin of Tuus, king of Greece. Water that passes through it turns into wine and that wine can heal any wound. The spear belongs to the king of Persia. It is called the Lewin. It is the deadliest spear in the world. Its head is kept steeped in a vessel of water so it will not burn down the place where it is kept. The seven pigs belong to Esel, king of the golden pillars, and though they are killed every night, they are found alive the next day. The whelp I want is the fall in us. She belongs to the king of the cold country. All the wild beasts of the world fall down at the sight of her and she is more beautiful than the sun. The cooking spit belongs to the women of Inish Keninya, the island of care of the fair hair. And lastly, the three shouts must be given on the hill of Miachin in the north of Lachlan. Miachin and his sons are under bonds not to allow any shouts to be given on that hill. It was with them that my father got his learning. 
And even if I forgive you his death, they would not forgive you for the three shouts. If you get through all your other voyages before you reach them, it is my opinion they themselves will avenge him. The sons of Turin fall silent and a darkness descends on their faces. It will be hard for us to get those things without your help, Brian replies. Will you lend us your horse? Einvar belongs to Manon MacLear, Lou replies. I will not lend you what I have on loan. Your curve, then, says Brian. It also belongs to Mananon, says Lou. But I will not deny you twice. If you do not bring it back in one piece, though, you'll be answering to him. When this has been agreed, the sons of Turin leave Tara and the assembly turns back to the matter of the coming war. Turin's aged face is like stone when his sons finish telling him of their task and his daughter Etna weeps by his side. Lou would like to get every part of this vine he could make use of in the battle with the Formor, says Turin. But he would like yourselves to come to your death looking for it. We will get every bit of it and come back alive, Booker replies. That curragh he gave us is very small though, says Brian. We'll be doing well to get the three of us in it at the same time. Etna wipes her eyes and scowls at Brian. Don't be finding fault with the curragh. It was a terrible thing you did to the father of Lou, and whatever harm comes to you is your own fault. Don't say that, Ockerbar replies. We are in good spirits, and our deeds will be so great that our saga will be remembered for a thousand generations. And we would rather die honourably than live as cowards, Brian adds. Then the sons of Turin leave the house of their father. The Kirk lies bottom up outside the house of Turin. Brian Ucher and Ochaba lift it over their heads and make the way to the sea. Then the three push out the curve from the beautiful clear watered coast of Ireland and begin their journey to foreign shores where their fate awaits them. Always, and I cannot stress this enough, check the fine print in any agreement. Yeah, that's a real moment of, you know, when you download something and then everyone just automatically ticks the box without reading the terms and conditions, (laughs) (laughs) essentially is what, what has happened here. This is a lesson we repeatedly see characters failing to take heed of in Irish mythology. 
be that in legal agreements or magic spells, you really have to nail down every little detail or else your opponent will exploit any loophole that remains. It probably should be no surprise that we're a very litigious country in some respects, yeah. <laughs> given that this is the heritage. <laughs> but anyway. You might remember that Tadagda gets away with killing the parasitic poet Crigenbale, who has been demanding the three best bits of his meal every night. He slips some gold coins into the food and poisons Crigenbale because, because the gold makes those bits the best. The court then finds that he was only complying with Crigenbale's demand. And then the Dagda's son Angus tricks Elkmar out of his house using wordplay. Angus makes use of the fact that the Irish language has no indefinite article and gets Elkmar to agree to give him his home, Le Coniha, which in Irish means both for uh, a night and a day and night and day. So all of the time, effectively. In today's story, the sons of Turin make the mistake of agreeing to bring Lou three apples, skin of a pig, a spear, two horses, a chariot, seven pigs, a dog's whelp, a cooking spit, and three shouts on a hill, without specifying the exact ones he was talking about. So when it turns out that he's looking for very specific items which are all difficult and dangerous to procure, it's already too late for the Sons of Turin to change their minds. In today's story, the Sons of Turin make the mistake of agreeing to bring Lou three apples, the skin of a pig, a spear, two horses, a chariot, seven pigs, a dog's whelp, that's a pup, a cooking spit, and three shouts on a hill, without specifying the exact ones he is talking about. When it turns out he's looking for very specific items, which will all be very difficult and dangerous to procure, it's already too late for the Sons of Turin to change their minds. Do you know, that made me think of something, it's not quite as extreme as this, but there's a lot to be said for giving people very, very specific instructions because I just want to tell our listeners about how this week I was going to the shops and I said to you, do you want, like, can you send me, do you want anything down the shops and I'll, I'll get them. And what I got was a note that asked me for bits for salad and then it had, you know, various vegetables what was one of the things on the list and then the other thing was uh like you know the tubes of squeezy garlic paste so he had put down uh squeezy garlic paste and anything else in the squeezy milieu (laughs) (laughs) right and that kind of vague instruction doesn't do anyone any favors going to the shops least of all trying to pay a fine for you know murdering a god basically (laughs) but anyway we will come back to those items in the next episode when we see the sons of Turin on their quest but the three shouts on a hill should have been the giveaway for them it's not the kind of thing you'd usually get in a fine and it kind of has the feel of a gesh when we get the explanation if you're new to the podcast you might not know what a gesh is it's kind of an old irish curse but it gives you normally two choices and usually they're both bad choices with bad outcomes but that's what it is yeah so here the choice before the children of turin is to do these very specific tasks or face death at the hands of lou but each task is dangerous in and of itself with the final task almost guaranteeing death the three shouts on a hill also sounds kind of like you know a dare you'd be given when you were a kid 
you know, to, to go somewhere you aren't supposed to be and then shout something and leg it. I think our dares were more like go and knock on that door and leg it, you know, postman's knock. Oh, yeah. Type was. I was never a big fan of that, to be honest. Well, neither was I, but you had to, you had to do it for some reason. For, Did you? For, yeah, for like society demanded the society of obviously the the feral children that you're i was one of you know <laughs> well that, but, that's the difference between you and i because i i recall just being like no <laughs> but that's because i'm not a fan of voluntarily running anywhere you know i've been ideologically opposed to that from a very young age so stands to reason that when someone said to me here knock your one's door and leg it that i'd have been like absolutely not i'll sit here and watch and not run <laughs> actually that they probably all thought it was me anyway like i was like a psycho child they'd open the door and like just see me sitting on the wall across the road laughing <laughs> it you, i don't know whether that's better or worse but anyway uh the sons of turin choose to go on the quest rather than meet the death of cowards because that way they will be remembered and immortalised in the sagas, and here we are today telling their story. The saga itself, known as Iha Klanya Turin, Oskailga, and The Fate of the Children of Turin in English, comes from 16th and 17th century manuscripts. So it's a bit later in provenance than a lot of the ones that, that we tell. But there are actually fragments of the story in the 11th century Book of Invasions, which shows that it has much older roots, or at least part of it does. We told the first part three episodes back, but it links directly into the other saga we're, we're retelling, the second Battle of Maitura. Our version is an adaptation, but it stays pretty close to the original tale. But we made a few small changes, most notably additional dialogue and extra scene description. Lou's speeches at his father's funeral are adapted from two different texts telling the story, so there's bits from both in there. The other main addition is the manner in which Lou learns the fate of his father. In the manuscript version, it just says that the land speaks to Lou, but doesn't say how. I was thinking of how trees communicate through a subterranean system of fungi known as the mycelial network, and thinking of him somehow connecting to that, which is the way we've described it in the story. And we've also combined the part of the story where Keen is murdered by the Sons of Turin with the part where Lou finds out. Do you know, isn't it a bit sad the way you see trees that are just sort of isolated on their own? You know, like in urban areas, where there's like one tree buried in the concrete and it's kind of cut off from yeah. the rest of the mycelial network. Yeah. Anyway... <laughs> <laughs> lonely trees um so you might have also noticed that Keen turns himself into a pig to try and evade his enemies if you listened to our last episode you'll have heard that happening in Balor's dream which we used as a means of foreshadowing Balor's coming confrontation with Lou now we've talked a good bit about Lou in previous episodes but we haven't really gone into his epithets the most famous of these is Lafada, which is usually translated as of the long hand, but it can also translate to of the long arm, which personally I think makes more sense, but whatever. It's possible this term came from his skill with ranged weaponry, like his spear and the slingshot. There's also connotations of justice and sovereignty about that name. 
We talked in previous episodes about how it is likely that in the last centuries before the coming of Christianity, Tuha or tribal groupings that predominantly predominantly worship blue seem to become more powerful in the northern half of the country and make moves towards uniting Ireland under their rule. The long hand of Lou then is this rule. After Lawfather, uh, Samuel Donach is probably the epithet most people associate with Lou. This means equally skilled in all the arts. In the story where Lou goes to Tara to claim his place among the gods, which we covered two episodes back, we heard how he gained entry to the home of the gods because of his many talents. Where most of the gods were known for one specific skill, he was known for being good at everything. Now, the idea of a god who was good at everything was probably the first step towards a monotheistic religion based on Lu that was scuppered by the arrival of Christianity. Big bold claim there now. Uh, you know, we, we are fans of big bold claims on this show. Well, I am, anyway. In the second battle of Maitura, when Lu arrives at Tara, he introduces himself as Lu Lonenschlech. This epithet is a bit of a mystery and I have yet to see it actually translated anywhere. Well, I haven't been able to find the actual word Lonenschlech anywhere else, um, except as an epithet of Lu. It might be related to the, the old Irish word Anschlech, which means combative. Now, Lon, while not in the most up-to-date Irish dictionaries, appears in O'Donnell's 1977 Folklore Gael Gaberle with the translation Fierceness, vehemence, eagerness, boldness, anger, irascibility. Furthermore, the Electronic Dictionary of the Irish Language, which focuses on Old and Middle Irish, has the word amlon, which is translated as not fierce or gentle. The am part of the word signifying it is the opposite of lan. So it looks like lanenschleck means fiercely competitive. This tallies with another of his epithets, Lambeinach, meaning fierce striker. It could be a reference to his prowess in battle, but it could also be evidence of his link with lightning in particular and weather in general. His long hand or long arm could then be looked at as a bolt of lightning, which also fits with the spear symbolism. In previous episodes, we talked about his significance as a harvest god and control of the weather would play a big, big part in such a role. That is all we have time for today. But in our next episode, we'll see the actual fate of the Children of Turn. But in the meantime, if you can't get enough Irish mythology podcast, you might consider becoming a patron. The show will always be free to listen to, but it is not free to make. You can support our work for as little as three euro a month and you will get story scripts and story-only audio, as well as early access to the next episode. From €5 Euro a month, you can access extra bonus content. But if you don't have the cash to spare right now, you can support us by sharing our episodes with family and friends on social media and by email for the older generation who, <laughs> who, who still do that. Or if you're too cool for social media. Yeah. Uh, Speaking of social media, you can find us on Twitter at Irish Mythology P, on Facebook, Irish Mythology Podcast, on Instagram at Irish Mythology and online at irishmythologypodcast.ie. And if you're listening on Apple Podcasts or another platform that includes ratings and you like the show, do us a favour and give us a five star rating. It helps us reach a wider audience and it would really, really help us if you could share those episodes with others. And remember, for the love of God, if someone asks you to get three apples, be sure 
and check in advance that they just want three Granny Smiths from Centra and you're not going to have to go on some death inviting battle across the lands and seas to procure three, <laughs> three apples that will eventually kill you. So that's all for now. We'll see you next time on Irish Mythology Podcast. Slán. Slán. You have been listening to the Irish Mythology Podcast. Written, presented and produced by Marcus O'Hishkeen and Stephanie Hearney. Theme music by Damiano Baldoni, Celtic Warrior, on an attribution license.